Hey, this is Tom Kiefer, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, welcome to your weekly dose of Focus on Metal. Scott Thompson here, happy to be back with you for another week of bringing you some uh, great hard rock, heavy metal interviews, and all kinds of other crap, and a couple of great guests this week. And, you know, throwing back to the end of last week where I couldn't have even told you what the heck I was going to be doing this week, and we did have a couple things in the can, but this actually wasn't one of them. And a few days after I finished mixing that episode... Richie texts me and uh, lets me know, uh, interview with Tom Kiefer, done. So we had Tom on when he did his last solo release for The Way Life Goes and uh, decided to pay us a second visit with his brand new release with him and the uh, Tom Kiefer band called Rise. So Tom will be going through... uh, all of what's been going on since the uh, the prior release right up to this one in uh, the making and all that good stuff. So good long talk with Tom Kiefer this week. And then also this week, we are doing our small part in trying to push new artists forward. And that would be our second talk this week. And that is with Abby Kay. And although uh, Abby's only 16... She's uh, definitely trying to take the right approach to being in the music business, and as she does a chat with Richie, you'll hear that uh, definitely has a lot of the same influences as uh, quite a few guests that we have on the show. And so, as I said, just trying to help a new artist along the way as we talk this week with uh, bassist, vocalist, Abby Kay. But uh, speaking of new stuff, no time like the present to get into our track of the week. All right, Ronnie Romero, Magnus Carlson, and also Mike Toronto. You might not know him, but he's uh, played with Rage, Axel Rudy Pell, and uh, a lot more people. But uh, these three guys are the main drivers behind the band, The Ferrymen. And they have got their second release out now. The, uh, they put one out in uh, June of 2017. That was their self-titled debut. And now here we are in October, and they have their brand new one, and it's called... A new evil, and you know, pretty much uh, any time that you've got Ronnie Romero on vocals, you know it's going to be something good. And then, of course, you go and you take a look at uh, you know everyone else that's involved with this stuff. That you've got Jacob Hansen, who's uh, done a lot of stuff with like Volbeat, Pretty Maids. He's mixed a whole crap load of people, but he's the man behind the board on this one. And there's also some killer, much metal artwork by Stan Decker on this thing as well. So go out and get a physical copy of this so you can admire all that as well. But this is that classic kind of uh, melodic heavy metal that you would expect if you would have put uh, Ronnie Romero and Magnus Carlson in a room, you get exactly what you are going to hear on this week's track of the week. So from our friends over at Frontiers, it's this week's track of the week. It's from the Ferryman off of their new one called A New Evil. And it's the title track, A New Evil.
There you go. Track of the week this week. And again, that is The Ferryman off of their brand new one, A New Evil. Really liking that one, too. And uh, you never know, that uh, may actually pop up again uh, later on in the episode. Don't know yet, but, uh, you know, like I said, really digging that one. But uh, right now, why don't we get on to uh, the main business of the show. And this week, kicking it off with uh, Richie's second chat with Tom Kiefer. As I had mentioned before, we had Tom on the show back a few years ago when he put out The Way Life Goes. And now with the uh, Tom Kiefer band, he's got a brand new one out and it's called Rise. So Richie was able to spend a little bit of time with Tom talking all about the new album, what's been going on from the last album up till now, because lots of things have happened in Tom's life in that time period. And also what the plans are coming up in the future for touring and all that kind of good stuff. So knowing all that, what do you say? I just uh, shut the hell up and turn the microphones over to Richie and Tom Kiefer. Hi, Thomas. Richie, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, man. How are you? I'm good. You're in Nashville? Yeah. Am I on time? You are bang on time. Good. (laughs) I tried. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I was talking to a friend of yours the other day, Mark Slaughter. And um, I know he lives down your way, and I know you toured with him years ago. And he said he's living there about twenty something years. And there was a few people he spoke to who asked him about moving there. I'm just wondering, were you one of them? Uh, I, I no, I don't remember specifically talking to him about uh, moving here. I moved here in '97. I think he came. I think he moved after that, but I don't remember discussing that with him. Okay. Now, he just mentioned that there was a couple of guys that asked him over the years what it's yeah. like to move there because it seems that a lot of musicians now, especially musicians from the 80s, like from the hard rock scene, they they all live yeah. down there now, and he was he was listing them all off. Um, yeah. Uh, well, with regard to that, that that's absolutely true. Um, I've been here a pretty long time. Uh, 97, I moved here, and then yeah, you know, just a great creative town. Lots of writers, great musicians. So, um, you know, it's it's really been a, a cool place for me to be. With you know, launching a, a solo project outside of my former band and, and starting a new band. You know, everyone's from here, and it's it's been really cool. Hmm. Do you get to jam with any of the musicians that are there now? Like, is there is there a bar downtown or a club where you guys get together and just jam on some tunes? You know, there's stuff like that that happens all the time, but I mean, Savannah and I are so between the, the, you know, making records and touring with the new band and we have a son and our family and all. We, I, honestly, we don't, uh, uh, in recent years, we don't get out that much, but there are some jam nights and stuff that, that happen, but we, we haven't uh, been out to any of them in a while. Mm. How old is your son, Tom? He's 15. As, as he, he, show- keeps, he keeps us pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> as- he, he plays. He plays uh, soccer, so he's uh, he's a goalie, like in the Division One. So uh, you know, his schedule is as crazy as ours. Has has he shown any uh, inclination into getting into the music business at all? Like, does he play? Well, he has musical talent. When he was much younger, I mean, he could barely walk and talk. He he sang and and played drums and then later he went on to study piano a little bit and saxophone in school but uh he's always been in, an athlete and into sports and there was a point you know he kind of dabbled in a lot of different sports and when he really started uh when he started playing soccer he was just like this is what i want to do i mean he wants to be a professional soccer player so that's his aspiration so we 
support him 150%. Mm. So, Tom, a lot of the guitar players I asked this question to, um, how many guitars do you think you have in your house? <laughs> I don't know. I can ask that question a lot. <laughs> I've, I've bought, sold, traded, done so many different deals over the years. I, I actually got rid of a lot of them when I moved to Nashville because I, I kind of did the old turn from old toys into some new toys because we built this really beautiful studio here and uh, kind of uh, got rid of some of them then and then I've bought some since so I don't know maybe 40, 50 I don't know. Okay. there's some over in the storage with, with the touring stuff there's some here in this studio that, I don't know I, I don't count them hmm. what, what's the one you won't get rid of no matter what is there one that stands out well my 59 burst uh, the standard Gibson, uh, Les Paul, as you know, has been with me since uh, I bought it just before the long cold. We made the long cold album, and I uh, toured with it, and used it on every record I made, and it's just you know, you know, one of those guitars that just feels like you know, part of you. Hmm. Is is that the guitar you write on the most? Um, sometimes uh, recording mostly. Uh, I, I like I said, I used to tour with it, but they've gone up so much in value that taking them on the road um, is a little scary these days. <laughs> um, so it stays in the studio and I absolutely use it for recording and writing, writing sometimes, but always, it always comes out when it's time to record. Okay. Have you ever written a song on piano and um, it ends up, you end up recording it on guitar with no piano in it at all? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I honestly don't think so. Okay. It's happened the other way around where I've written something on the guitar and then say, hmm, this could be, this might be cooler on the piano. The title track for the new record, Rise, happened that way. It, it was really kind of strummed out on an acoustic guitar when we all sat down to write it. And later it felt like the piano would be nice for this. Uh, yeah, it's a, no, it's always kind of happened the other way around, I think. Okay, so when did you start writing songs for this? Did did you did you write on the road at all? Because you toured a lot on the last record, or did you wait until you came off the road and then start? Um, on the road, it's always about collecting song ideas, but I, I usually don't sit down and actually write them. I kind of let you know you you grab a voice memo of a melody or a lyric you hear here and there, um, or some of them you just let kind of simmer in your head or you you jot down a title or an idea it usually uh, almost always starts with a lyric idea and uh, savannah writes from the same place and we co-write you know pretty much everything with the solo stuff and uh so she and i when we've been out on the road touring with the band the last uh six years or so um have just been collecting those ideas and we finally got to the point where um, we felt we had toured enough and really built the band and built our chemistry and kind of built who we were out on the tour trail, you know, so people about this new band and what we were about. And at the end of our dates last year, we decided to start to make a record with, with the new band. Uh, unlike the first solo release, which was Session Players, we made this one with, you know, this band that's been touring for six years mm. so at that point we was at that point we went into the well of all these ideas we've been collecting and you'd kind of see which ones really smack you in the face and you sit down and you'd actually write 
Um, so it, it's kind of like, I guess, people who write books, maybe they get titles, ideas for titles, you know, like subject matters or things that they want to write about. Mm. And just, just kind of store them along the way. And then the ones that really hit you in the face and, and feel the strongest when you actually kind of sit down to write. Um, I find those songs usually end up kind of writing themselves very quickly because if you have a good idea, it really falls out, you know, or something that really means something to you. So, so that's what we did, you know, back in uh, last fall before we went in and started cutting tracks, we grabbed all these ideas and actually sat down and started actually writing, writing the book, if you will. Um, it's and that's a, usually how it works for me. I don't actually usually complete and finish songs on the road. It's I grabbing the, the ideas, and then there's a point where you sit and you write them, and then you go in and you record them. It's interesting, Tom, you bring up that the lyric idea starts the, the song, because I've spoken to many musicians, and normally it's the other way around. It's always the music first, and then the lyrics come after it. Um, yeah, I know there's no right or wrong way. That's the way I've always been going all the way back to the Cinderella stuff. Even the heaviest songs that are really driven by heavy guitar riffs started with lyrics. Um, and that's just how I write. And I tend to write with people who approach it the same way as Savannah does. And most of the writers that I've worked with since I've been doing solo stuff write from that perspective, because that's the story and that's the emotion. And once you know what that emotion is, it kind of dictates what the music should sound like. And I would imagine for people who write from a place of music first, it's it's the same thing. They they come up with a piece of music that has some emotion to it, and then they try to find lyrics that match that emotion. So the same thing, you know, it's just a different approach. Um, we We listen to the emotion of the music and decide, like you said, should this be, you know, this would feel better on a piano. This is more of a mid-tempo ballad thing. We're not putting a big heavy riff, guitar riff on this one. This emotion needs to be something else. But then there's songs like The Death of Me, where the lyric really called for something really angsty and heavy and and high energy. And uh, that was obviously, you know, I just instantly picked when I saw that lyric that Savannah handed to me, because she wrote pretty much that whole lyric. I read the lyric and I picked up the guitar and I tuned the E string down to B. <laughs> I was like, how low and heavy can we go on this song? <laughs> and I start, and started playing that dissonant riff because that's what the lyric felt like. <laughs>
It's, um, I think it's definitely our most varied set of songs on any one album. Um, do you think that was de- deliberate? Was that a direction you wanted to go in? Or do you just think that having the musicians around you, you kind of went there organically anyway? In, in terms of the energy of the the entire record, you mean? Yeah, like the, it's very varied. Like you know, you've got the rock songs, you've got the ballads. It's a very varied set of songs. Oh yeah, well, that's that's the kind of records that I grew up on. Um, I, I don't, um, you know, I I just feel like I'm I'm an album person, you know, a record person. You know, like the journey from the first song to the last song. And it kind of takes you through different dynamics and emotions. So I think every record I've been involved with, even the Cinderella stuff, has, you know, the ballads and the mid-tempos. And again, I think that that's, you know, the lyric dictates what kind of feeling that song should have. So some lyrics, you know, it's a ballad or it's just an acoustic guitar, you know, very kind of intimate. And then other ones need to really, like, knock you in the face and be heavy and rock. So I think that that comes again from the lyrics kind of dictates that. And then, you know, the band, this band, cause we've been touring together for six years and the chemistry that we have, you know, mm. it's really easy when we got in the room together. It's like, okay, here's the song. This is the vibe. And it just kind of fell together. You know? A song like waiting on the demons versus a song like hype two very different fields and it was very easy to shift gears with this band because we've been playing together for you know i mean touring six years straight really so yeah we literally we literally got off the bus and walked into a studio (laughs) (laughs) and a lot of the tracks are live like right off the track you know this is probably the least amount of overdubbing i've ever done on a record you know we really went in and tried to get performances set up in the room together headphones on it was kind of a small tight room look each other in the eye hit record and and go for performances and then you know tried to preserve preserve as much of that as possible i mean obviously we did some overdubs but a lot of these tracks you know from the, from the drums up to even my lead vocal are, are right off the floor you know we barely touched anything mm. the, w- the one thing you keep emphasizing tom and i'm glad you're doing it is this is a band it's not just a solo project yeah, and that's that's you know that's I never wanted to be a solo artist. All my heroes were bands: the Stones, Skinner, Eagles, Zeppelin. You know, they were just kind of like you know, just be part of the gang. And uh, that's what this band felt like from day one. And the, and the fans recognized that, which I thought was really cool. And uh, they actually came up with they started tagging things online: hashtag Kiefer Band. And we we kept seeing that, and we were like, "Well, let's just call the band Hashtag for Band." So that's that's our logo. Hmm. Are you finding now, Tom, six years into it, that in the beginning, I think probably the majority, if not all, of your crowd were coming to see the band because it was you. But now you're seeing people that are coming to see the band, and they're not really familiar as much with some of the Cinderella stuff. Um, I think most of the people coming are from, familiar with the Cinderella stuff. And actually, what's really pleasantly surprising is that they're equally as familiar with the new stuff, um, which is, that that's a cool thing to be able to play, like, you know, the single from um, The Way Life Goes, Solid Ground, which was the first thing we released. To hear that 
follow Nobody's Fool in the set and get as big of a response as Nobody's Fool, that that's really cool. And that that's you know that's now that kind of legitimizes the the new entity or the new band because obviously I'm going to play the stuff from Cinderella because it's a part of my past. I wrote the songs, I sang them, I still love performing them, and the fans still want to hear them. But I've started this new band. And I think for that to be legitimate, we also have to inject new music and, and, you know, you want that music to be accepted. And so far, so good. You know, the way life goes was, and this new record live has been going down really, really great. So, yeah. So, so Tom, is there any rarely played or never played Cinderella song that you may be tied with putting into the set with, with this band? Is there one that I've, you, you very rarely, never- either never played with Cinderella or you very rarely played with Cinderella that you've maybe thought of resurrecting with this band and putting it in the set? Um, we actually, the first year we were out touring, we did we uh, we did one for rock and roll off of the uh, Heartbreak Station record in its entirety, which is a, a kind of a odd, eclectic track. It's a acoustic uh, country meets reggae meets rock. It's a, it's an interesting track. Uh, we had done pieces of it, like kind of just the intro and first verse with Cinderella, but we never performed the whole song live. And uh, it's one that the, the lyric is has become really popular with the fans. I see a lot of tattoos, uh, long as I got rock and roll, I'm forever young, which is the tagline of the chorus. And I've seen probably more tattoos of that than any other Cinderella lyric out there. So uh, we actually we actually did that one in its entirety on the uh, the very first leg of the tour when we started supporting the way life goes and it went went over great. It was really fun to play. Mm. Very different very different song. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a kind of very left to center vibe and feel. But the lyric has a I think the lyric has a lot of meaning yeah. for people. Yeah. Now, now Tom, over the years you have had vocal issues and operations on your vocal cords. Um, I always wanted to ask you, how did you resist the urge to sing after having the operations? Because you hear people that, you know, they might get operations, they might have a a broken leg, for example, or something like that. And, you know, they might say it'll take eight weeks and you might feel after six weeks, yeah, I can probably walk on it now. How how do you just not sing? Um, Well, the first thing after a surgery is it's, complete stress. you can't talk so singing is out of question <laughs> so they yeah. they usually they usually make sure that they give that you know that you know it's i've had i've been on voice rest as long as three and four weeks where you can't say utter a word i'm walking around with a notepad and uh you know when the doctor says do not utter a word you don't even think about singing and i think they you know they usually prescribe that for enough time to make sure that you're completely healed and um, it usually, once they give you, they release you from the voice rest, you're allowed to start singing again. So um, it, it's not even an option after you have surgery to sing. I mean, you, they don't even want you to talk for X amount of time. Did you? So there's, there's not really a choice unless hmm? you want to screw up, screw up the surgery. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how do you not talk? See, this is the other thing. Like, I've, I've been talking since I was nine months old. That's not something that's easy to shut down. Yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> it's not fun. It's not fun. Um, 
you know, it's uh, the easiest way is to try and stay a little more in solitude and away from people. Yeah. Because, because you know, there's there's actually a, one of the places where I had surgery had had buttons that said, I'm on voice rest, I can't talk, to try and help you. Because the most frustrating thing is when you're on voice rest is people will keep talking to you. Even though you kind of like right on the pad, like I can't talk. And then, you, you know, obviously you're just kind of like feel trapped in your own body because you can't engage in the conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so, you know, it's important to kind of seek a little solitude and be around people. You know, like my, obviously Savannah and my son know when I'm from voice rest, you know, they they understand and, you know, they don't um, try to pull me out of it, you know. But if you're, you know, if you're out in public and all people, you know, it's just a natural thing. People don't really understand. So um, it's a... Uh, that that's a frustrating part of it, you know. So seeking some solitude or just being around people who understand, you know, where you're at is is probably the key to um, not being tempted to uh, to start engaging in conversation. <laughs> Tom, when when you're in voice rest and you can't sing, do you write music or do you just shut it all completely down because you can't do one without the other? Mm, yeah, it's kind of all one thing for me. Um, and particularly since writing, it comes from a place of lyrics, which is a vocal expression. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever written um, during voice rest. Yeah. So w- would you consider yourself then a singer that also plays guitar or a guitarist who also sings? Um, when I first started off, I thought I was a guitar player. And I was at eight, at eight years old. I wanted to learn how to play guitar. It's kind of evolved. Yeah. <laughs> your question. And that teacher came in and taught me the basic chords on an acoustic guitar and made me sing songs like Beatles songs and, and folk songs and stuff. So um, so I was learning to sing and play at the same time, but I was still thinking, oh, I'm a guitar player. And then I heard hard rock songs on an electric guitar, and I kind of delved more into learning the riffs and being a guitar player. And then when I started writing songs and doing demos, which ultimately led to the, the stuff that you heard on the early Cinderella records and all. There wasn't a singer around that sounded like what I wanted for the those songs, so I started singing on the demos, and I wasn't very good to start with, because I was always the guy in the cover bands that would just sing a couple songs while the lead singer took a break when we were doing five sets a night. <laughs> so... But so I guess in answer to your question, it's kind of evolved. It was like guitar player, guitar singer guy, then just guitar, and then um, started singing. And but once I started writing songs, I feel like it's—I almost feel like it's songwriter first, and then I'm a guitarist and a singer who performs them. Okay. Now, because without a because without a song, you know, when you're going in to make records and then you're obviously going to tour behind them, the whole thing to me starts with a song. Yeah. So I guess that's the the priority is to come up with those emotions and those songs and all that are something that you feel like you want to write about and express. And then, you you know, and then you go express them. For me, I express it through my voice and, and guitar. Hmm. And sometimes piano, you know. Yeah. Now, a couple of years ago, I interviewed Dwayne Barron the engineer, and he did the Still Climbing record with, with yes. uh, John Prudell. And I asked Dwayne, uh, why was there so many drummers that recorded the drum tracks on Still Climbing? And he, all, his only answer was, you have to ask Tom. So I have you, <laughs> so I have you now, 
I have you, I have you now, Tom. So I'm going to ask you, why did you have three drummers record the tracks on that album? Oh man, you know, if I remember that, that was a period of time where Fred had left the band, and we had we had auditioned some drummers and thought that we had someone. And Andy John started off producing the record, and he was having some issues and wasn't able to finish, and he wasn't happy with the original tracks that we cut. And I mean, it's just a long story. It mm. was a mess. The whole record was a mess. Um, and then we hired John and we, we cut a couple of different sets of tracks with, um, with Andy that kind of just got shelved uh, with two different drummers. And then, but once, once Dwayne and John came in, I, I think we settled on Kenny Aronoff and we cut everything with Kenny. So once John and, and Dwayne came in, there, there weren't, there wasn't any shifting around. You know, I, I always had loved Kenny's playing. And at that, at that point it was like, well, I had actually suggested Kenny and he came in and then just blew everybody's mind. And we're like, yeah, let's do the record with him. Mm. So, uh, the, the first attempt when we were working with Andy was muddled for quite, quite a number of reasons that I, I don't want to get into a hundred percent here. Okay. <laughs> but, um, once we switched producers and uh, we're working with Dwayne and John, there was only one of them. Okay. Okay. Um, we just got a couple of questions to finish Tom. Um, do you still have any of the outfits you wore uh, from the Night Songs period, like the album cover, the clothes you wore? Do you still have any of those? You know, I am trying to think. A lot of it went to the hard rock, and I know that a lot of those outfits from the early tours and guitars and different artifacts um, are spread throughout the world in different hard rocks. Um, I do have, some, I know I do still have some stuff in the attic. I think I might have um i don't remember um everything that went to the hard rock but i i, I do have some of it hmm. do you collect do you collect I, could, I couldn't tell you i couldn't tell you specifically which yeah do, do, are you something someone that collected memorabilia from back then no you didn't bother really. i mean i mean there's stuff there's boxes of stuff in the attic of stuff that you know you get handed along the way like a you know tour book from the long call winter tour or you know there was you know and i know up there there's like some acetate i think from some of our original pressings and you know just not intentionally collecting things it's just you know something falls in here i know that's cool put it in the box <laughs> might want to see that later but not not like you know actively pursuing it's just stuff that accumulates where you go hey let's hang on to this it's cool yeah so has your son ever looked at any of those pictures and said dad what were you thinking um, no, I mean, he doesn't think there's anything odd about it at all. I think it looks like rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> final question for me, Tom. Um, I was at Donington in 87 uh, uh -huh. when you opened. Um, how do you prepare yourself to open for a crowd of 80,000 people? Um, you know, I just try not to think about what's about to happen. Um, I've always tried to just stay calm before I go on the, on the stage and let the adrenaline take you where you're going to go. To be honest, the bigger the crowd, the easier. Uh, the smaller the crowd, the harder. And I think that most performers would tell you that. It's far harder to sit in a room like with an acoustic guitar with 20 people <laughs> hmm. than it is to walk out on the stage for 80,000 
where you're amped up and there's then there's adrenaline and you, you know it's so I I find the the more intimate um, performances more intimidating than than the big festivals and um, you know when you walk out on the stage with the band and the gang and you know you got you know you you've got it in your bones and you've been doing it you know we've been touring for you know quite a while before we hit the Donington stage and it it was it was just just felt exciting you know I mean it, it, the more the people the more the adrenaline you know which obviously makes it makes makes it easier to be honest. Yeah, have you ever taught nothing? I really nothing. I really do to prepare. Yeah. for it. Have you ever thought of doing some acoustic shows? Just you? Um, you know, I I don't. Um, we do them occasionally for radio stations. You know, they want to kind of come in and do like a stripped down versions of of songs. Um, but you know, I I kind of like the feel. I do acoustic stuff within. You know, the, obviously within the, the course of different records, but I, I'm not really an acoustic artist. It's not something I'd want to do a whole show of. I like the dynamics of going from a blast and electric rock song to like, you know, now we break it down to like the acoustic song and kind of that the dynamics and changes of the flow within the set mm-hmm. uh, is is more what I I like to do. I, I think doing an entire acoustic show would not be something that um, I would want to do. Yeah. So what have you got coming up for the rest of the year and, and 2020? Just more touring? Yeah, more touring. I mean, the record's only been out a couple of weeks and uh, we're just getting going on uh, supporting it and start touring back again in October and we're planning more dates for um, next year and more singles to come and videos and stuff that we're working on now. So we're, we're just going to we're going to keep going. You think you're going to get outside the U.S.? Uh, we're talking about next summer. Nice. We're going over, over to Europe, so we've got our fingers crossed that'll come together. Nice. Well, Tom, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. Yeah, you too, man. All right. Thanks for, thanks for having me. No, no worries. I'll see you out in, out in the road sometime. All right. Sounds good, my uh, friend. You uh, have a good day. You too, Tom. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs>
And there you go. There's one more from the brand new one from Tom Kiefer. That one's called All Amped Up. And if you want to find out more information, keep uh, up with what's going on with Tom Kiefer and the uh, Tom Kiefer Band, then you want to go to TomKiefer.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Tom Kiefer Music. All right. And speaking of uh, social media links, if uh, you want to get hold of our next artist, then you want to go to Abby K, as in the letter K, on bass.com. Don't go to other Abby K things. You may find out that uh, it's really not what you're looking for. But anyways, as I just uh, alluded to, up next is we have bassist vocalist, actually kind of can call her a multi-instrumentalist, Abby K, pretty new on the scene, but definitely making some waves. And uh, you got to give it to somebody who's considered good enough to open for the uh, one and only Nita Strauss. And, you know, Nita definitely uh, has some pretty high standards, and she has had Abby open some shows for her. And there's a lot of other things Abby talks about in uh, Richie's chat with her this week. So rather than me sit here and try to describe exactly, uh, influences and all that good stuff why don't i just uh, let abby speak for herself as i turn the microphone over to richie and abby k this is abby k and i'm on focus on metal hey this is abby k hey abby it's richie from uh, focus on metal how are you i'm great how are you i'm excellent i'm excellent so i want to ask you about your parents record collection uh when you were growing up uh how varied is it so growing up my parents were very into music. They really, um, actually, my first memory of music was when my dad would put like Bon Jovi, Kiss, Metallica on my iPod when I would ask for Kiss, and I really started to listen to a lot of different variety of rock music, and that's really how I got into rock music. Hmm. So, who else in the family is musical? Does anyone else play an instrument? Um, no one else plays an instrument, but my mom, my dad, and my sister, they all sing. Okay. So so was KISS your first concert? Yes, that was my first concert. I was 12 years old. Um, I begged my dad to take me to a concert, and he was so excited to take me. And I remember sitting at the very back of the lawn on top of my dad's shoulders. I was wearing the Paul Stanley makeup, and I was mesmerized by Gene Simmons. <laughs> my, my son is nine, and... Um He's been to a couple of concerts, but there there were club concerts. And the first arena concert he went to, I, I was either going to bring him to Kiss or Trans Siberian Orchestra. And um, yeah, Trans Siberian Orchestra came around first, and he still wants to see Kiss. Um, are you going to go and see him again now before they finish? Because they're supposedly on their farewell tour. Yeah. So since I saw them when I was twelve, I also saw them in. Raleigh, North Carolina, a few months ago, and just a few weeks ago, I saw them in Charlotte for the last time. Okay, okay. So, can you tell me about the first bass guitar you got, and do you still have it? The first bass I got was from a local pawn shop. Um, it was it was kind of an off-brand music man, and I really enjoyed that bass, but that's really all I knew. And I did end up selling that bass, but before I sold it, I signed the inside of the pit guard. So that is still out there somewhere. And I traded it in to help pay for my Schecter 5 string because I do have to pay for all of my own instruments. Mm-hmm. And have you had anyone on to maybe endorse you yet? Or, or is that, do you think that's going to come down the pipeline in the future? 
I have had a few offers, and I did just sign a deal with Doggone It Screen Printing, so I will be attending NAM this winter, and I will be performing every day there. Wow. You're going to meet a lot of people there. I've I've interviewed a lot of people that are actually at NAM, and the, the musicians that go to that are like if if you're in if you're a serious musician, it's like you're going to meet your heroes at that. Yes, I'm so excited. Mm. So, have you met any of your heroes um, since you started? Like people who had a big influence on you. So my biggest influence is Nita Strauss, and I have had the opportunity to meet her multiple times. I actually got to open for her twice, and she is a really good role model for me. We still talk, um, and after I opened for her. I saw her with Alice Cooper for the second time, and we actually went to Cleveland, Ohio for that show, and we met her at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, my dad and I did, and she said, how many band guest passes do you want? So that's a really, really good connection for me to have. I'm so thankful for our relationship. Hmm. So what what do you think is the best piece of advice she gave you about the music business? Like, were you able to sit down a lot with her and talk about it? Yeah, so the first time I opened for her, after the show, she gave me her set list and she signed it, play fearlessly. And I will never forget that because at the end of the day, you just have to go and play. And you know your parts, you're prepared, you just have to go play and whatever comes out, comes out. Hmm. So tell me about forming the band that, that you have now. Um, did you want people in the band that are more or less the same age as you? So... Honestly, I wanted a band that I knew I could rely on to be there on time, show up, and know their parts, and I really can understand where they're going next in the music, and I really have that right now. I have Logan Foland on guitar. He's new to the scene, but he's spectacular, and I also have Pat Gerasio from Red Sun Rising on drums. Okay. So, do you have any issues um, at some of the venues that you play at because of the age restriction that you might have difficulties actually getting in there and playing because you're so young. So I think there are some difficulties playing at large venues at such a young age. I think there's some trust issues that the venue owners might be a little a little skeptical of hiring a 16-year-old to play and fill a venue. But I do hope that the more I get my name out there, the more my song is heard, that people will start taking me more seriously that, I, I really want to do this, and I know that I can if I put my mind to it. Hmm. So I had I remember a few months ago I had Andy Galian on. He was the drummer in a band called um, Death Angel, and they came up at the same time as as Metallica and and all the other Bay Area trash bands. Now he we talked about his debut record. He was fourteen or fifteen when he made it, and he was saying that one of the issues they had when they were young was. Some of the other bands maybe used to look at them funny, like because they they'd look at them saying, "Who are you?" and they'd say, um, "I'm actually the support act or something like that." So, have have you ever experienced yeah. any any of that at all from bands that you're playing with that they mightn't take you seriously as as a musician because you're you're 16? No, so I've the only bands I've opened up for um, are actually Nita Strauss on her solo tour, and of course she's so supportive. Mm-hmm. But I haven't really faced any of that from other musicians or other bands. I think the community in Charlotte is so supportive of young musicians and female musicians, but I am hoping to get more of a national name pretty soon, and I I do think I will 
be treated fairly because I act professional because it's what I want to do. I want to be a professional, so I have to act professional. Mm-hmm. So you have the single out now. Are you someone who wants to make albums or, or singles? Because now with Spotify and everything, a lot of the people really don't listen to full albums anymore. Yes. So I think in this generation, people are more likely to sit down and listen to one song than a full album. And I do think I'll continue releasing singles for now because when I play a show, I want everyone to know every song. But if I release a full album, not everyone's going to know all of the same songs. And I just think it's better for the audience and it's better for me right now. Hmm. So do you play play cover versions in the set? Yes, I play um, about half covers and half originals now. Um, I cover Iron Maiden, Metallica, um, Motorhead, but then I do play some originals as well. Okay, so what, what Iron Maiden song, Metallica songs, what songs do you play? I play The Trooper by Iron Maiden. Um, I play Ace of Spades by Motorhead. I play For Whom the Bell Tolls by Metallica. And I also play some Avenged Sevenfold and Motley Crue. Oh, so Steve Harris, Lemmy, and Cliff Burton. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So, what would they be your other biggest influences as a bass player then? The likes of Steve and and Cliff, like, and I know you said Gene was a huge influence on you, but who else would be your biggest influences? Like, even outside the rock genre, have you a big influence there? So, outside of the rock genre, right now, um, a female bassist I'm really interested in is Cal Wilkinsfeld. And but inside the rock genre, I love Steve Harris, Lemmy, Getty Lee, uh, Geezer Butler, and of course Gene Simmons. Wow! And is that all from your parents? Really, all all those influences? They just had all that music in their collection. Um, most of it. Um, every band and bass player, except for Getty Lee. I didn't grow up listening to Rush, but. As soon as I heard YYZ for the first time, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm learning that. And <laughs> it took me about a month, but I learned it, and I'm so happy I did. <laughs> now, I'm going to guess you never actually got to see Rush. I did not. Okay. Oh, yeah, because they retired about four or five years ago. Yeah, they're yeah. Ama- amazing live band. Is, is, how many of your yeah. big influence have you actually got to see then? Because... A lot of these bands are coming towards the end of their career. Like, I don't know if you got to see Black Sabbath a few years ago when they came around uh, with Geezer, Ozzy, and Tony. Like, is that something that you look on the calendar now and you're very conscious when the bands come around now that I have to see this band, I have to see this band, I have to see this band? Yes, so I had a very busy summer of concerts. I got to see Alice Cooper twice this year. I got to see Kiss twice this year, so I... I love seeing Gene Simmons live. He's so confident on the bass. And I did get to see Steve Harris with Iron Maiden this year, and that was maybe one of the best concerts I had ever been to. Um, Hearing the Trooper live, I remember that was maybe my second song I ever learned on bass, and I would go out to my home studio with my dad every night and practice for hours until we we could both get it right. And so that was a really, really cool experience for me. Wow. Um, but I have never seen Black Sabbath. I would love to, but of course, not an option. Yeah. And I would love to see Rush. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, the, the songs you're learning in the beginning, The Trooper and YYZ, they're not the easiest ones to learn. Um, do, do they're you, not. Yeah. Do you, Abby, do you find it easy to sing and, and play bass at the same time? 
I do, which is actually kind of strange because bass is a melodic and a rhythmic instrument and singing is melodic, but I I just find the groove and I go with it, I guess. It just came naturally to me. Hmm. So when you went to a Grammy camp, what exactly do they teach you up there about the music business? How in-depth do they get? So Grammy camp, in order to get in, you have to know how to play your instrument. That's, they don't work on playing your instrument at all. You play your instruments to learn how to make it in the music business. So we learn about songwriting, royal, royalties, um, and a lot of social media and networking. And so it was honestly mainly the music business side of things. Um, I learned like the difference between like a full band and a hired gun. And I also got to work with Megan Trainer, And so that was that was a really great week for me. Hmm. So, so what did you learn there about the business that you maybe went, whoa, I didn't know about that at all? Was there anything that stands out like that? So I went in not knowing anything about songwriting. I was never planning on being a songwriter. I really had no idea what I wanted to do with music. But I came out of Grammy Camp knowing that, oh, I need to write songs. So, And I didn't go home and write songs. I knew I had to, but I didn't know where to start. And that's when I got the inspiration after I auditioned for the band. And they didn't pick me after they told me I was their best option. And that's how I wrote It Should Have Been Me. Oh, okay, okay. So where, do you, where, where can you see your career going then? Do, do you think... You're going to stay where you are, or do you think in, in maybe in a few years down the line you're going to have to relocate somewhere, like like um like a Vegas or an LA or a New York or somewhere like that? Honestly, I'm not sure right now. I'm only 16. I still have another year and a half of high school left, and I will be finishing high school. Um, and after that, I really don't know where I'll be at. It all depends on what happens in these next two summers. I have um, going on tour and. Eventually, I do think I will relocate to Los Angeles or maybe somewhere else, but it really all depends what happens in these next two years. Hmm. And do you find it difficult to do the, the schooling as well as the music? Can they, can one get in the way of the other? It can, but I've been very fortunate. My school has been very helpful with me. Um, I actually only have to go to school for the first morning classes of the day, and then I take three college classes online. Oh, no. I have a very good schedule, so I get to come to the studio a lot to work on music. Nice, nice. Well, Abby, I'm going to leave you go. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I really like the song, by the way. Thank you so much. So um, just keep bringing out the music, and uh, we'll, I'll, I'll keep promoting it for you. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. No problem, Abby. Well, have a good rest of the day. Do you want to, here, do you want to give out? Do you want to give out your uh, social media sites where people can get in touch with you? Yes. Yes. So you can find me on all social media at Abby K on Base and on my website, abbykonbase.com. Okay, perfect. Well, have a good rest of the day. And there you go. Richie's talk with uh, bassist vocalist Abby K. And as I mentioned beforehand, head to Abby K on Base, either on Twitter or just on the web. So what do you say, as promised, before we get out of here this week, play you a little bit more off of the Ferryman release, A New Evil. Let's call it a bonus track of the week for you this week. And this one's called Your Own Hero.
will do it for this week and actually this month on Focus on Metal as next week we stream into November, if you can believe it, November, a.k.a. Metal Month. And we've got plenty of cool stuff in store for you as we go through November. Talks with uh, Mark Slaughter, Brian Tishy, uh, Greg Christian. Yeah, that Greg Christian. Going to be talking some Testament, a whole bunch of Testament. And then we got some other authors that are uh, on board as well. Maybe even a chat with uh, Johnny Z and then also related to Johnny Z. If we can fit it in, and it might be a cool thing to do for Metal Month, is we have a very special interview that was provided to us from one of our loyal listeners, and it's actually very, very cool. And it's an interview with Cliff and Kirk done at Hammerfest back in 1985. And from what I've been told, this has only been aired once Ever. So, yeah, lots of cool stuff on the way November, and I guess is the way I'm calling it, into December as well. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So, for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great Metal Week, and as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insane. Still here? It's over. Go home.